0: Good. If you didn't receive a message card on your way in, uh, you can just raise your hand right quick and one of our ushers would be more than glad to serve you. Yeah, just leave your hand up just a second. And uh, we're in the middle of a series called Missions March. Did you say that with me? Missions March. Missions March. And uh, Pastor Chad, of course, last week kicked us off with a message. And um, you, you—if you if you hadn't had the opportunity to listen to that or maybe you missed last week, just always encourage you to catch up. You can do so on the podcast and, uh, of course, follow us on social media and there's All kinds of different ways. There's Monday morning commentary and other ways that you can find and review what God has spoken to us. But uh, I want you to grab your Bible, if you have a Bible, and go in the book of Isaiah. I want to jump straight in this morning. Isaiah chapter 60. Yeah, just keep your hand raised. We have a few more that are up here. Isaiah chapter 60. We're going to do a little bit different as we read God's Word in your hearing. In just a moment when I pray, uh, at the conclusion of the prayer, I want us to make a declaration over our city. Our city is Woodstock. Our city is Uh, Of course, represented by where our church is planted, by location, there are people here all across the metro area, so not all of you, I understand very clearly, are not from Woodstock, but it is the city that we are planted, and this is Dwelling Place Woodstock. And for those who are new to our community, uh, maybe you don't know that our heart and desire is not just to plant one church, but to be a church planting movement, and uh, we already have a church in Orlando, and uh, we're praying and believing for God to continue to speak and plant in the years to come and help us. As we journey in what God has for us. I want to preach to you a message that I'm entitling today. Bringing life to our city. Bringing life to our city. And so would you pray with me? Lord I thank you that in these moments. Lord we can gather in your presence. And Lord this is your microphone and your stage. And your spotlight and your time God. And I pray that you would speak to us. I thank you Jesus that you are the hope of our city. I thank you that you're the life of our city. I thank you, Lord, for your kindness that you've shown us. I thank you, Lord, right now that where there are pockets of brokenness in our city, I ask that your kingdom would come. Lord, your word says your kingdom is near. That means that repentance is nearer even than sin, that God's transformation is nearer than even hopelessness, God. I thank you that where the enemy, God, seems most active in our community, I pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come. I pray, O oh God, that you would increase your presence among us today. I pray for an awareness among our lives and those that are gathered together, God, to know that, Lord, you have anointed us, Lord, for every sphere. Lord, you've anointed us for the place that you've called us to serve. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and engage our minds? I pray you would engage our hearts today, engage our intellect. Lord, give us with the wisdom of heaven, the insight of heaven, the ability to know and understand what you have for this day, for this hour And so we declare over you, if you want to open your eyes and read with me, we're declaring Isaiah 61 through 3 over our city. So we declare over you, Woodstock, read with me, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you this morning to rise upon us. Rise upon us, O God, and help us to be your church. Help us to be your light. We give you praise to this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? You know, as the pastor of this church, co-pastor of this church holding a pastoral role in this church. Um, I've said it before, but I want to say it again. I, I don't have a desire for our church to be the best church in the city. But I do, however, have the desire for Dwelling Place Woodstock to be the best church for the city. There's a big difference there. Not just the best church in the city, but the best church for the city. I think it's a desire and should be the desire of every local church pastor that your church that you serve would be the best church for the city. What I mean by that is when broken people, when destitute people, when desperate people are looking and thinking about where they can find help, where they can find direction, they should think of this place. They should be able to think of our church as a place of mercy, as a place of generosity, as a place of life, as a place of grace, as a place of love. So the question that I want to raise for us this morning is how can we bring life to our city through the dreams and the desires that God has given us. So what I'm totally uninterested in this morning is saying, okay, God, what is your dream and desire for us specifically? And then, Lord, I want to try to cause those that you've gathered together as your church to try to fit that vision or mold. I'm really more interested in saying, God, what are the dreams and visions you've put in the people that is the church of Woodstock? And how do we come alongside it and say, God, we can shape the culture and the city we live in through these dreams, and visions. I've learned through the years that God sometimes takes something that we would rather not do and, and, and rather not see in a new way, and He exposes us to how He sees that area. There's many times I look at something and I see it in an incorrect way, and the Holy Spirit or Jesus touches me again, and I see it in a brand new way. And I think one of the, one, the areas that we struggle in in American culture is this whole idea of receiving honor. How to handle honor. In American culture, we just don't know how to handle honor. Let me prove it to you. I think it's probably best reflected in worship leaders. If I can just stay here for just a moment, okay? Um, You go up to a worship leader at the end of a set, and for, for so many years, we've not known how to understand or receive honor. So you go to a worship leader at the end of a set, and you say to him, you know what? That's amazing what happened today in the worship set. And what would they say? Immediately, they say, well, you know what? It was the Lord. And we would say, no, it wasn't that good. You know what I'm saying? Because if it was the Lord, I think the singing would have been a little bit more angelic. And if it was the Lord, I think we would have noticed. But it was you, and I watched you hold a microphone, and I watched you sing. Now, no doubt you opened your gift. No doubt God's given you vocal cords. No doubt God's given you lungs. No doubt when you lifted it to heaven, the Lord landed on it. But it was you. It was not the Lord. It was you. It was you leading us in worshiping the Lord. And and what we're trying to do, I understand, I'm good-hearted, and I know this may not come across um, correctly initially. It may not eventually either, but just just follow me for a few minutes. It's going to take me a few minutes to get this set up. What we're trying to do is we're trying to come to a place, because of our awkwardness, of any sense of honor, we try to put it all on God. But the problem with that is Jesus made statements that go against that. And that's our text for today, Matthew chapter 5 verse 14. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. You are. You, disciples, you, church, are the light of the world. A city or a town built on a hill, he said, cannot be hidden. Now, the other difficulty I have with Matthew five fourteen is elsewhere in John chapter 8. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Now, that's slightly confusing. Is it you, Jesus, or is it us? He says, you are the light of the world. You know what that means? When you walk into a room, light does two things. Now, for so long, I think, at least in the churches I've been a part of, we focused on the one purpose, the primary, not the primary purpose of light, but only one purpose of light. And we focus on light and its purpose of dispelling darkness. But that's not the primary purpose of light. The primary purpose of light is to dispel darkness, to release and reveal design. Listen, I don't want a light in my room just to get rid of the darkness, that would be dumb. That's not why I have a light. I have a light in my room to reveal what is in the room. I have a light in the room to be able to see clearly that which is designed. To be able to see clearly that which God or the builder or whoever has placed in that room. That there is something actually hidden in there that I need to find. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You know what he said to us? He said, you are carrying something in your life that when you begin to walk into an environment, you begin to reverse the climate in that room, and you begin to release God's design. You as light are called to release the design of God in wherever God has called you, to reveal God's purpose for that place. That's what you are. Now, the problem is, is if you're the light of the world and you keep trying to keep yourself hidden, thinking that that's humility, you actually miss the purpose God has intended for you in your industry. You've missed the purpose God has for you in your teaching vocation. You miss the purpose God has for you in your retail business. You miss it altogether. The Bible says very clearly that God has raised us up. If you keep Putting down what God is trying to raise up, you're going to have a problem. And you don't want to arm wrestle with God. Because his arm's really strong. That's why I think Westlife, remember Westlife, the old band, were some of the best theologians. You remember this? Oh, if you don't remember the name, you know the song. I want you to, I want you to listen to this song real quick. All right, You know it. We play it at funerals. It's emotional. All right, But listen to this quick, just a, a little snippet of this song. You're going to know it very well. the song you raised me up you've heard it right probably heard it a funeral right well the bible says that's exactly what happened when you became a believer that god made you alive with christ and he raised you up to be seated with christ in heavenly places God raised you up. He's placed you in a position right now as a believer in this room where you have intimacy with the Father and you have perspective over what's happening around you. And it's from that position in Christ and that position of intimacy where you begin to impress upon God's heart your desires and God begins to impress upon your heart His desires and all of a sudden it begins to literally reshape the world around you. This is God's purpose and intent. In fact, we could go all through the Bible today. I don't have time to go all through the Bible, of course. But God takes people on a journey where he raises them up. This is what God desires to do with humanity. He's always done it. He will always keep doing it. Let me just take you real quickly. Now, the problem is we're not comfortable with that. I know it. We don't like to be raised up. We particularly, you know, in our culture that is very bombastic, arrogant, prideful, hubristic, we now in the church think that we can't be raised up because we'll be like them. But, but this is what God does. And uh, most believers that I interact with, they think that when Jesus comes into their life, his goal is to make them lower. And God wants to make you lower and lower. But I want to take you very quickly through the Old Testament. When God entered Abraham's life, Genesis chapter 12, when he entered the life of Abraham, I want to ask you a question. You ready for the game? Did he make him lower or higher? When God entered Abraham's life, did he make him lower or higher? Real easy. Higher. He says to him in Genesis chapter 12, he says, what, what, what is his promise in the Abrahamic covenant? He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless all nations through you, all nations of the earth. Anyone who blesses you, I'll bless. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. He made him higher. I'm going to bless you. In fact, did you know, if you continue on in the Old Testament, when, when God enters in Moses' life, did he make him higher or lower? Higher. Did he make him greater or lesser? Greater. In fact, did you know this? When he comes and gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he says to Moses, "Hey Moses, when I give you these Ten, ten Commandments, it's going to make you look really, really good." You don't believe that's in there, do you? I know. You don't believe it. God God says to him, when I give you the Ten Commandments, I'm going to make you really look really, really good in front of all the whole community and, and company of Israel. I want you to see it, because you're going to think I'm lying. Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. This is what he says. He says, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. Now, that's kingdom special effects. Hollywood ain't got nothing on God. There's no need to come in a dense cloud, but I want all the people down at the bottom of the hill to know that I'm with you, so I'm going to come in this dense cloud. Moses just here's what I'm going to do, so that all the people will hear me speaking with you and always will put their trust in what? What does that say? It doesn't say, God, that the people will always put their trust in who? You, Moses. Oh, this is a bad deal, God, because I know me. And because I know me, I don't trust me, so I don't think you trust me. But that's not true. He looks at him and says, I'm going to come to you in this dense cloud. I'm going to speak to you, and when I speak to you, I'm going to uh, cause the people to look at you and say they're always going to put their trust in you. It's very important we get this, because if we don't, we, we cut off the very life God wants to bring to Woodstock. We cut off the very life. Listen, some of what we say is, you know, you know it might just not sit right initially, but, but in verse 9, he says, Moses I'm going to make you great. I'm going to cause all people to trust you. Now, if you're Moses, aren't you like, wait a minute, God? Isn't that what you would do? Like, wait a minute, bad idea, God. Like, I didn't bring these people out of Egypt. I didn't create these people. I certainly didn't cross the Red Sea on my own strength. I don't want them to put their trust in me. I want them to put their trust in you. And God says, shh. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. I'm going to speak to you, and they're going to put their trust in you for your whole life. The level of authority God puts on humanity is mind-blowing. The level of authority that God puts and the level of trust. Think about the trust of Almighty God putting that kind of trust on dirt. Blows my mind. See, because I know me and because I know me, I don't trust me. But I think my father doesn't trust me. But I've got news for you. Your father does trust you. In fact, he trusts me so much, he moved in. Hello. He trusts me so much, he moved in. He lives in me. He entered into something with us called a covenant. It's not contract. We've talked about it a lot the last few weeks. What are covenants built on? They're built on T-R-U-S-T, trust and nothing else. That's what a covenant's built on. And that trust is two ways. God then says, hey, son, I love you. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say? We've heard it at every wedding. We've heard it over and over. Love, always, trust. So when God says he loves you, what does he do? There's no other way to get around the scripture. Love, always, trust. Love, always, trust. So, son, I love you, so I trust you. I'm thinking that's a bad investment, God. I wouldn't trust me. So Moses, higher or lower? Higher. Higher. David, higher or lower? Joshua, higher or lower? Let me give you another one. You ready? I just want you to see it. Joshua chapter three, verse seven, because you you think this is just one. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I'll begin to exalt you, Joshua. Oh, God, we sing this song. I exalt thee. I can't sing, right? And God's looking at at Joshua and saying, I exalt thee. That messes with our theology a little bit. I exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so they may know, you can't miss this, that I am with you as I was with Moses. You don't exalt Joshua, God. You got it all wrong. God... Joshua is supposed to exalt you. Are you seeing the pattern here? you seeing the pattern? We can go. We can keep going through the Old Testament. It's a pattern after pattern. And here is God saying, I'm going to put something so radiant and brilliant in your life, Joshua, that others will stop and stare. And Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament. And he says, you know what? You are the light of the world, disciples. In other words, I'm going to put something so incredibly and infinitely beautiful on your life that it will be so compellingly attractive to other people. But here's the deal. You can't put it under a bushel. You can't hide it. Don't, out of false humility, bury the very thing God has put on you to lead the nations to him. Because he's put something on you to lead nations to him. You are the light of the world. Don't take what God has put on you and begin to hide it because you're the light of the world. What does that mean? That means the dreams and the destiny of Woodstock, Georgia begin to come alive as you enter it. You're the light of the world. You're to release and reveal design and destiny. whatever community you find yourself in. God's intention all along, catch this, all along God's intention when he put his spirit in you, he put the third person of Godhead, that's the Holy Spirit who is not just a force and is not impersonal, it's God himself. The Holy Spirit came inside of you and he has given you in that moment his very life and he's given you in that moment the very mind of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, the mind of Christ opens up all sorts of potentialities and all sorts of probabilities and possibilities that never exist in until you walked into the room. When you walk into the room of your business, you have the mind of Christ in a way that no one else has the mind of Christ unless they're believers. You have the potentiality and the possibility for change or design and revealing God's purpose in a way that no one else does. This is what God's called us. When you enter a room, hope walks in. How do I know that? Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Hope walks into your job when you walk into your job. The Bible says Christ is inside of you. So the hope that your company needs, so the hope that your family needs, the hope that your school needs, the hope that your family needs is sitting in your seat this morning. Sitting in your seat. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's something Jesus wants to do. Folks. Why would God ask us to plant a church in Woodstock, Georgia if there's not something Jesus wants to do in our city that's linked directly to our obedience? Directly to what our obedience is and what he's asking us to do. And all through the Old Testament, God takes someone and he raises them up. In fact, I can't find anywhere in the Old Testament where he tries to grind somebody down. Just, just, just crushing. And I get it. This is the last thing I'll say on this area, and I'm going to move and where I'm going to land. I get it. We pray these well-meaning prayers. I know and understand. They're very well-meaning. We have great devotion. But we say things like this. We say, God, all of you and none of me. Can I just say it's a really dumb prayer? Now, think about this just a second. Now, I know... John the Baptist, what you're thinking, oh, may I decrease that he increase. Yeah, I know what you're thinking, a transformation that you die to the life that you live, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. But catch this. If you're saying, God, all of you and none of me, that's altogether different. What do you mean, Craig? Yeah, because if God wanted all of him and none of you, he wouldn't have made you. He had that before he made you. If he wanted all of him and none of you, he wouldn't have made you. You'd have never been put on the earth. But he made you. And he fashioned you, and he designed you, and he put his hand on you, and he molded you, and he put his spirit on you, and he created your end from your beginning because he's the Alpha and Omega. And he saw what he would call you to, and he worked his way backwards, making sure he put in you everything that was necessary to accomplish his purpose in this earth. This is what God did. This is what he did. People, the same people who say, thank you, God. Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God designed me, God made me. And then we look at God and say, God, all of you and none of me. That makes no sense whatsoever. If you're fearfully and wonderfully made, then he wants. See, the purpose of the cross, folks, would not be that it would be all of him and none of you. The purpose of the cross is so that it could be all of him in all of you. Love the Lord your God with all of you all your heart with all your mind with all your strength with all your soul all of jesus in all of you loving with all this is Jesus' desire and because we don't trust us we say god take me out of the equation i just don't need to be here and god would you do this mystical magical ethereal thing where you just all of you and none of me because i don't trust me and no, no no i just want to be utterly destroyed and that's about as far from relationship as possible And listen to me, that's about as far from Christian responsibility as you can possibly get. And we make these statements because we're afraid we'll screw it up and we're afraid we'll screw it up. You know why we're afraid we'll screw it up? Because we don't believe for a moment that we truly are the light of the world. I know we quote it. I know it's on your Bible. I know you've seen it on a screen. I know you try to encourage your small group with it, but you don't believe you are the light of the world until you start understanding where God has placed you. That I am truly, it doesn't change the way we really live until we know it changes what happens when we walk into a room. And so what we're doing is we're buried under the lies of insignificance and inferiority and inadequacy. And the enemy is so blinded our hearts and the enemy is so blinded our minds that we don't actually understand the solutions and design that we bring to every environment that we walk in. This is what we are as the church. That's why he said through the Proverbs, the Proverbs says in 11, uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11, he said, through the blessing of the upright, catch this, a city is exalted, catch that, the blessing of the church, the blessing of those who are his, he said the city is exalted. You know what that means? That means when righteous people understand what it is that they carry and they begin to release it, the whole city gets a lift. The city of Woodstock will get a lift when the righteous people of God understand what it is they carry, the authority they carry, and the purpose that they are here and placed here for do you understand that you are the solution for your company's ills right now I, i'm going to say it again did you understand that the church i personally this is personal opinion can't prove that i think the church is the solution for america's recession i honestly do i don't think that america will come out of the recession unless it's the people who are filled with the spirit of god and the brilliance of god and the wisdom of god to be able to make the decisions of god I personally believe that. Do you know in your own company's eels you're the answer? You have the ability to bring solutions that nobody else can bring. Why? Because you are a son or a daughter of God. If there's any way out of it, It's going to come from brilliant believers like yourself. So how do we begin to bring life to the city? Our vision here at Dwelling Place is manifesting Christ in many ways to many people. We've spent the last year and a half, multiple series, talking about our mission, laying out our mission. We even did so again in our DP strategy on September. But today I want to talk about the vision. It's manifesting Christ in many ways to many people. How does that happen? What's the prophetic picture, so to speak, of our church in this community? Well, let me just briefly say how we don't bring life to the city. We don't bring life to the city by avoiding the city. We don't bring life to the city by avoiding the city. It is impossible to bring life to culture when we are intimidated by culture. And haven't we for years, this is where the church has been. Can I just meddle for just a moment? Isn't this where the church has been for like the last, I mean, 30 years? We were worried that if we got around anything that was cultural, if we touched anything that was a cultural deal, then we would be contaminated by it. So what we began to do in about the 80s and 90s was we began to create spiritual ghettos. I call them spiritual Christian subcultures. We create spiritual ghettos where we live in these spiritual ghettos where every Christian retreats and every once in a while we come out to throw a track at somebody. And I'm not here to offend anybody, okay? Maybe you came to Christ with a track. God can do whatever, right? But what we do is we come out and we throw a track at somebody, like on a Saturday morning evangelism thing. We throw a track, and then we run back to our spiritual ghettos, and we get in, and we're like, hey, what did you do today? And they're like, we're celebrating each other. You know, it's like, good job. It's like, did you go out there? Yeah, I went out there on the street. What did you do? Why well, I knocked on the door, gave him a track. Did you really? Yeah, awesome, man. That was amazing, you know? And so we, we live in our spiritual ghettos, totally retreated back, From the world thinking that the world's going to contaminate us. And we congratulate each other. And yet we're saying to each other good job when God wants us out in the culture. And everything about it is characterized by fear. And everything about it is characterized by intimidation. And nothing about it at all smacks of heaven where it's filled with generosity, filled with joy, and filled with life. It's all intimidation. We used to be so intimidated by culture. Reminds me of the early church in Acts chapter 2. We often think they're bold, but they're not bold before they receive the baptism. You know what they're doing? They're locked in behind the door, scared to death because they already crucified their Savior. They're wondering what the leaders are going to do with them. And they're up there praying because Jesus said, Don't leave Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high. But they're afraid. The church is huddled in praying for the promise, but they're afraid what the rulers would do to them. They're hunkered down. They're, 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 They're huddled up. And then... The Spirit comes. (laughs) And when the Spirit comes, the church can't remain any longer in its spiritual ghetto. The church can't remain any longer in its Christian subculture. The church is moved by the Spirit of God, and we have this picture of the church bursting out onto the streets with joy, with generosity, and with life. And the people are saying, what in the world's going on? Are they drunk? And they said, no, but they're speaking in a language. We understand why. Because when the Spirit of God comes on his church, he begins to get his church to Speak to the culture in a way that resonates with culture and attracts culture to Jesus Christ. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be enhanced in your witness. This is what God desires to do in our culture. He breaks us out of this intimidation culture. Can I tell you the good news this morning? When it comes to culture, you are the contaminator. The church is carrying the infection. That don't sound good, but it works. You are carrying the disease. When it comes to culture, it's far more likely that what is on you will get on them. I think it was once phrased, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. As the church, we are the contaminators. As the church, we are the ones holding hope. This is what God says. If you're around darkness, church, listen to me sooner or later, it has to give way. At some point, it's going to give way. As you keep engaging in darkness. this is why for student ministry, I just speak from my context. I was in student ministry 12 years, so in student ministry, uh, parents had a really hard time understanding why um, when, when we sent students off to the university and they graduated, uh, we didn't say, "Guard, God, guard them from all these temptations on their campus." I never prayed that. I've never prayed that over my own kids, actually. Pray from the get-go. Lord, not guarding from temptation. I've always prayed, God, would you fill them with your purpose and desire and revelation? Because your revelation causes people, lack of revelation causes people to cast off restraint. But revelation, when understanding where God's called you to do it, enables holiness and right living. Lord, give them a picture of what you've called them to do from a young age. Lord, let that be the single centering priority of their life. We don't ever pray over students, Lord, save them from temptation. We say, hey, you just graduated school. And you've been changing your school for the last four years. Praise God for that. There's so many students in your school that already know Jesus because of your faithfulness. You know what? Now the Father in heaven thought about you so much, he's going to give you four years to walk up in a university setting and bring change there. He's in you. He lives in you. You need to understand the authority you carry. This is what we need to be in dwelling place, by the way. We don't need to be retreating back from culture, intimidated by culture. God's put his authority in you. God's put his light in you. God's put his spirit in you. So you know what? Learn what it is you carry. Walk onto your campus, and by the time you leave, listen to me, young man, there is no possibility that that culture and that college can remain the same. There's no philosophy philosophy lecture can take away what your experience is with God. I don't care what they tell you. When you know God and you're rooted in truth and and found in biblical doctrine and know the pattern of sound teaching, you have no reason to be intimidated. No reason. So we're not retreating. We're not scared. We're not intimidated. We're engaging. It's time for the church to let her light shine. It's time for the church to shine. It's time. And then we did a different thing, right? We moved out of the 80s and 90s of the intimidation. And then we went to the 2000s to the dreadful part. We started not intimidated by culture, started imitating the culture. Remember the 2000s? Still a lot of churches. And what is that? The church became this dreadful thing called culturally relevant. You want know a great book? Oz Guinness wrote a book, Relevance is an Idol. Oz Guinness, fabulous book. And he talks about trying to be relevant to culture, it's an idol. We had church relevance. Now, you, what are you saying, Craig? Should we avoid culture? No, I'm not saying that. Follow me a minute. But relevance to the current culture is a vote for death. Let me tell you something. When you want to be relevant to a culture that's passing away, you're voting for death. If you want to be relevant to a culture, you're married. You'll be a widower every morning, right? You're waking up and something's changed. You, you're married to culture. You're married to relevance. And cultural relevance, as good as it is to help us move away from cultural avoidance listen to me for the church cultural relevance is far too low a goal far too low a goal as a church we're not seeking to be relevant to the culture that's here that's a culture that's passing away we're seeking to be relevant to the culture that's coming and to resonate with that culture that's the kingdom of god and god hasn't called us to sit at the feet of culture has he? Is the church, he's called us to sit at the feet of the culture. He's called us to reign with him and rule and reign with him and begin to shape the culture with the heart of a servant from that position in Christ that we serve other people. God. And all, if all we want to be is relevant to the culture around us, we have nothing to offer the culture around us. We have nothing to offer them. If I'm getting my values from that and my values from culture, what do I have to bring to them that they don't already have? I don't have anything to bring to them. Have you noticed this over the last few years? That culture just keeps recycling the same stuff? I mean, y'all ever find this odd? Seriously. Like, I'm only 31 years old, but I've lived in the 80s twice. I mean, seriously. If you're 40, you lived in the 70s twice. Right? We're living in the 50s right now. People like me that's got hair, we, we style our hairs like the outsiders. The 50s. The 50s are right back in. We slick them over, baby. Put on the pleather pants. There are two sets of leather pants. At the see you, see you a, a later party last night, leather jackets. We're, we're right back in the fifties. We're regressing all the time. What is that, Craig? Listen to me. I want you to listen to me. When culture runs out of creativity, when culture runs out of how to bring solutions to the future, it looks backwards. It starts getting nostalgic. It starts saying, let's look backwards to the good old days. It looks back to once was, but we as the church are not people who look backwards. We as the church of Jesus Christ are people who look forward to the kingdom that is coming, and we have the capacity to introduce to the culture new dreams, new new ideas, new desires, new things, new creativity. This is what God has called us to do. And listen to me, I'm not just talking about spiritual things. I'm talking about fashionable things. We ought to introduce and have Christian people who who introduce fashion ideas to our culture that begin to shape culture. I'm talking about I'm talking about ideas in the the commerce and the industry. I'm talking about artistic things. I'm talking about musical things. I'm talking about sculpting things. I'm talking about photography things. I'm talking about media things. I'm talking about recreational things that we, as the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, we should be His people so immersed in His Spirit, influencing the culture because we're not trying to become like the culture it's a new ideas and God has called us to model something entirely different in our community and you can't be the light of the world and try to be relevant you either stand out or you don't and we settle for being an echo don't we we settle for being an echo what do you mean Craig I see it in our music I love Mumford and Sons anybody love Mumford and Sons Mumford and Sons has been huge the last few years. But you know what? When you listen to Mumford and Sons, what's so amazing to me about that band is five years ago, I mean they're fabulous, they're great. But it's just amazing to me how many church bands in the last five years started sounding like Mumford and Sons. Like every church band that came on the scene sounds like Mumford and Sons. Because Mumford & Sons leads the cultural revolution, so we begin to adopt what they do. And five years before that, it was like Coldplay. (laughs) You know, it's like every church band's like Coldplay up here on the stage, right? This is the sound we're going for. And I heard this guy sing the song the other day on the radio. And he said, uh, and we joined with the angels singing. And it sounded just like Mumford & Sons. And I thought, why don't we just strip it all back and just join with the angels singing? Why don't we not sing? like Mumford and Sons when we join with the angels singing and just strip it all back and join with what the angels are singing. Why don't we just listen to the sounds of heaven? Do you know that there are sounds in heaven that God wants to release? He would like to, heaven has something that it's saying. And I was started of praying this week, Lord, let dwelling place church. And, I, and I'm gonna move into just for, if you'll follow me for a few moments, what I believe is something very prophetic. Lord, would you allow us to come to a place, I'm not just talking about in Woodstock, but in churches at large, that God, you, you would allow us to have leaders that it would be raised up, that would hear the sounds from heaven and would begin to release in the worship scene a sound of what God's doing in this community. That it's not just a model that is, is predicated on discipleship and we understanding and releasing and books and model, but no, it's also a sound that's coming from this place. That we get to a place, you know what, where where churches in our own movement begin to have some familiarity and some uniformity, and they begin to have some kindredness, so to speak, because there's a sound from heaven that we hear. There's things that exist in heaven that begin to shape the earth. Rich Mullins, one of my favorite worship artists when I was first a believer, his most famous song, you know how he wrote it? He wrote it because he was driving down the road and he overheard a conversation in heaven between angels and he writes this song and that become one of the most famous songs. I was with uh, I was with Joel Houston many, many years back. It was like 2008 or nine, and you remember Hillsong United, he's the, the leader of Hillsong United and uh, I was in Virginia Beach and I got to spend an entire day with him and, and what is now the pastor of Hillsong New York City. Carl Lentz and I was there with my friend uh, on the beach and we were in this beach house just hanging out between these sessions and uh, Joel Houston who is the leader of Hillsong United brought out this little this little uh, journal it was like a moleskin journal and he opened it up in the first page he had some scribble and the top of it said inside out now from the inside out became one of Hillsong's other than "Darling Check's great you know song becomes one of Hillsong United's greatest most global songs most well-known songs and I looked on that sheet and I asked him hey where how did you write that song from the inside out and he said it took over months but I heard it as a conversation he literally said I heard the words as I was driving along on the wind and I thought dear God that's what's got to happen we've got to have worship leaders who hear the sound of heaven who are able to release what God is saying for our community that is unique to our community not just echoing what everybody else is saying but you know what Lord we're in tune with your spirit and we hear what you are saying that's why Andrew Fletcher who always misattributes the quote to Plato he said let me make the song.'" of a nation I don't care who makes its laws in other words if you make the songs of a nation you change the nation overnight you change it overnight cultural relevance is good but it's way too low a goal and it's birthed and sourced in fear the fear of being left out fear of being left behind last time I looked we follow a savior who made himself of no reputation we have no fear and it deeply mattered to Jesus that the honor of heaven and the honor of the Father rested on his life. And when he knew that, he began to shape the culture around him, didn't he? Did Jesus get shaped or shape? He shaped and then he put his spirit in us so we could do the very same thing. So we could do the very same thing. Where we could begin to innovate, begin to lead culture from within Wouldn't you love it? Can I just say this? Wouldn't you love it if churches were known as the most artistic centers in the community? Wouldn't that be cool if if churches were known as the most artistic? Seriously. The most artistic centers. You know what I would really love? Like I like it when people paint in church and all this. And this is some of Krista Drummond's paintings that I have here on display. Like I love when people paint in churches. It's all good, Right? This is all I'll say, like, you, there can never be too many doves in church. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I've grown up in church. Everybody paints a dove on every message. You know what I'm saying? There's like 3,000 doves on stage. So there, there's always, and there's, there can never be enough doves, right, indicative of the Holy Spirit. But, but as much as I like painting in church like this, much as I love painting, you know, on a stage or painting while a message is going on, or, for instance, many of these painted an all-night prayer, I would really love it if the church would put on an art exhibition, what if we put on an art exhibition in the future in the center of town and we called to every artist and painter and sculptor in the community and said, Bring your best stuff. People who are born again, believers who know Jesus Christ, bring your best stuff. And we begin to call them out. And you know what would happen? Then all of a sudden the community would come along and they would see it and they would be impressed by it. And then they would begin to imitate what we are doing. They, I need you to hear this morning, not in a natural sense, I need you to hear in a spiritual sense they would begin to imitate what the church is doing. Because it's right in the middle of the city. And they would begin to imitate it. And we would have moved art out from a stage that's 20 by 12 and brought it right into the heart of the city. Because 20 by 12 only reaches so many people, but the city reaches everybody. Right in the center of the city. If we're going to do prophetic art, let's do it in the center of the city, right? Let's get creative Holy Spirit ideas to do it in the city so the city could come see it and the city could come alive. If we did prophetic dance, how many of you were part of Easter last year, Resurrection Sunday, we did prophetic dance. We had a group come in from from Cleveland, Tennessee. They did prophetic dance. If we're going to do prophetic dance, let's set up dance schools all over the city of Woodside. There's a girl who leads that that, that group, that group, uh, Alexis is her name, and Alexis, I've gotten to meet, I've gotten to be in a relationship for the last few years when I was in Cleveland. Um, I met her in about year one that I was there, and um, she had a desire as she was doing something called the veil at Lee to be able to, she sat down with me one time, and we did this lunch, and and she was telling me that her desire was to be able to open up dance schools because she wanted to start a dance troupe that would serve not just in travel to go to other churches, but she wanted it right in the center of the city, and then that kind of dream, I guess, died off because many churches started having them, so that we had them for Easter. We brought them in for Easter. I never she forget, she said that when I was a young girl, as a teenager, I went to my pastor one day and she said to her pastor, she said, Pastor, I know that this church is all about spiritual freedom, so I wish I could dance. Do you care if I dance? And he looked at her and he said, no, you can't dance here. And she's like, I thought this was all about you're inhibiting my spiritual freedom. And he says, no, I know that you love dance, but he said, we have a lot of lost people here. And quite honestly, I don't wanna see you in your leotard. And when you got up and danced in front of people in this congregation, they might not know what that is, but since you love dance, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go start a dance school right in the middle of the city. And she's like, well, you're inhibiting my spiritual freedom. And she was mad for the last, for about four or five weeks. And then all of a sudden it hit her oh, that's what God's doing. You know what she did? She just this week moved into a brand new location, and she's got a list as long as her arm of people that are waiting to get into her dance troupe. Why? That would have been just locked into the church, but now it's in the heart of the city. This is God's desire. That we don't call people to come to us. We permeate our culture with Christ-like thinking and behavior. That we permeate our culture in the arts and the dance. Why? With the prophetic sense. This is what God's calling us to do. Manifest Christ in many ways to the people around us. To bring life to our city in all kinds of different ways we are the light of the world and if we hide it in our churches we don't get to see it in our culture we don't get to see it She's just moved locations and see what she feel, felt needed to be expressed in church realized soon enough that could bless the whole city we need to take the lead in cultural innovation anybody talk to people on a daily basis and realize her culture is desperately crying out for life I mean, people I talk to in our culture, did you know tonight there will be a young girl who goes to sleep about five miles from here, probably less? She's afraid that her father's going to sexually abuse her again. She lives just right down the road, and she'll just turn over and cry herself to sleep. There's a mother this morning that didn't make it to church. She's gonna, she turned over in her bed again last night, and she wondered... Is tomorrow the day I'm going to leave? I I don't know if I can take any more beatings. Is this the final beating? There's a man five minutes from here, not five minutes from here, that's injecting himself in the arm with any substance he can get his hands on simply to take the pain away. He's hurting deeply. There are elderly people in our community right now that watch whatever is on TV tonight into the early hours of the morning because they long for their loneliness and isolation to be over. And Jesus wants to be there, but he can't unless spirit-filled believers engage the culture. Unless we walk into those environments and we spill over hope. We spill over life, bringing life to our city. The city all around us, church, is longing to wake up longing to have life. And then there is in this church filled with irrepressible hope, and if we hide it in the building, they never get to see. They never know. And God's calling us. And the Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom. As you've heard Pastor Chad preach on many times in this, this sanctuary, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of wisdom, the Bible says in Proverbs, speaks out over the city. The Spirit of wisdom And wisdom isn't how we imagine it to be. We imagine wisdom is this cautious, compromising thing. Like we're taught that wisdom is like, the wise person in the room is the one who comes to a compromise. But Jesus was never a compromiser. We think of wisdom as taking the middle road. Jesus never took the middle road. And culture teaches us that that's what a a wisdom is. Jesus never did that. Let me tell you what wisdom does. You ready? Here's wisdom. Wisdom demonstrates in the heart of the community the solutions that are available from heaven. Wisdom demonstrates in the heart of your teaching job the solutions that are available from heaven. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom gets a hold of the Father and begins to release that in the community. What did Paul say in Ephesians 1:18, verse 17 and 18? You transformationers who are at dwelling place growth phases, what did he say? I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you can begin to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You can carry that into your community. Why? So that we can begin to supply the destiny of the city of Woodstock. That we have the spirit of wisdom to know what it is that Woodstock desires and Woodstock needs and your job needs. This is what God's desire. That we would have innovation. That we would have insight in all these different areas to bring life to our city. I want to see prophetic words. I was praying this this week. Come that save businessmen hundreds of thousands of dollars. That'll be a good kingdom day. I pray that in the life of dwelling place, there are prophetic words that come that save thousands and thousands of dollars. And then those businessmen tithe. Come on, somebody say hallelujah, amen. And then the kingdom begins to advance even more. Wouldn't it be amazing if you're an accountant today? That wouldn't be amazing. That would be like a death sentence to me. But If you're an accountant, wouldn't it be amazing if tomorrow night, catch this, tomorrow night, Monday night, you fell asleep and God gave you a dream that saved your clients thousands of dollars. Don't you think they'd hire you back for next year? And isn't that what's available to us as spirit-filled believers? Yes. Dreams, visions, language of the Holy Spirit, communication from God. And so often we think the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is given so we can have better times of ministry. But the Holy Spirit is given so that we can bring life to broken humanity. To people in our culture. People that are desperately, desperately hurting. Don't you think that would be an amazing thing? If God gave you insight that no one else has in your job? Jeremiah 33.3 Call unto me and I will answer you, God says. And I will, tell, I will tell you great and unsearchable things that you cannot Google. You can't get those things from anywhere else. Can I just say this to you real quick? It used to be that we, we lived in a knowledge society. Did you know this? But now Google has changed everything. Do you remember when knowledge used to be of the priority of our nation, right? But right now you can Google in five seconds and have an intelligible conversation about any topic on the planet. Knowledge doesn't matter in terms of me having more knowledge than other people in the room. That doesn't matter anymore. We don't live in a knowledge society anymore. Here's what's invaluable. With the increase of knowledge in America, there's been a decrease in wisdom. And what is needed in the rooms that you walk in today is not knowledge. What is needed in your job today is not knowledge. What is needed on your workplace today is not knowledge. You need the insight of heaven, the wisdom of heaven, to bring a solution that cannot be Googled. To bring about a solution for your job that cannot be Googled, that comes from another source so that people can take the body of information and knowledge and begin to create a pathway that the business can move forward. But that doesn't happen unless spirit-filled believers get wisdom from another source. Folks, I hope you're hearing me this morning. This is what it means to innovate. This is what it means to manifest Christ in culture. Manifest Christ in many ways to many people. Whatever God wants to bring life to a region, he summons the artists, He summons the dreamers, the visionaries who hear from heaven. He does. You Remember Solomon in the Old Testament? He looked around in the Old Testament. He knew his royal identity as a king. He knew he was. He knew the Spirit of God put him where he was. But he started looking around at other cultures. And did you know? In the cultures of the ancient Near Eastern culture, all of them had what they called wisdom schools. Israel was the only nation that didn't have a wisdom school. So you know what Solomon did? He said, we're going to start a wisdom school. And he began to train young people. At that time, it was males. It wasn't females because of the culture. He began to train young people who would shape society. He began to shape princes and train train leaders, and he would teach them little sayings that becomes the Proverbs. Those little sayings in the wisdom school of Israel were to guide everyday life. They thought that if they could get young people to memorize sayings, the sayings would spill it out into wisdom. It would spill it out into decisions they make in everyday life. And so whatever they were doing, whenever they were doing their engineering or whether they were doing their trade or their art or their commerce in the nation of israel their wisdom sayings would govern their everyday lives what he was teaching them was this life does not revolve around your income did you hear me life does not revolve around your income because the princes were already destined for greatness destined for wealth life revolves around your insight and the same is true for our culture it's not about your income Pastor Chad told me this week, the number one reason why people are staying at their jobs long term is not the money. It's absolutely not the number one. Even in our own country, why? It's that they feel that they have a part to play in something that's greater and bigger beyond them. Life doesn't revolve around your income. It revolves around your insight. It revolves around your wisdom. That's why he said in Proverbs 4, 7, with all you're getting, get wisdom. Get all you can get, but get wisdom. And then the culture responds to wisdom. What happens in that school of Solomon? The Queen of Sheba comes to visit. You know what the Queen of Sheba does? Go read it. She walks straight up into the place. And I believe that's a, she's so staggered by the wisdom of Solomon and these young people. And I believe that's a prophetic picture of the church in the coming days. I believe, listen, I believe all around in our communities right now, authorities are broke. We know that. And the future of our churches never goes beyond the cultures of our own heart. When we raise up young people, raise up the next generation, it's time for dreams to begin to shape the cities we live in, and 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 the the civic authorities. We we are, look look at our national authorities. Just watch a, a press conference. They're crying out for solutions. They don't know what to do, and all most will say of. The- Civic leaders don't know Jesus, so they're living as orphan rulers who don't have a father. They're living out a fatherless existence trying to provide leadership to a community or a nation, and yet the church is living under the influence of the Almighty Father. We're living under the influence of God Almighty, and we have access to solutions that our civic leaders need. And I just declare prophetically the days are coming when local leaders will come to our church, and they'll say, what do we do about and fill in the blank. What do we do about this and fill in the blank? Why? Because the church is taking her place. And many people, many of you right now, you've got a personal vision about what God's called to you, but God sent me today to tell you something. Many of you have a personal vision, but you lack the very very few people live the actual dream. They get the vision, they never live the dream. It's because we love the promise more than we fear the, the process of what it takes to, to gain that wisdom. To go through life and understand, I've got engage the holy spirit here from heaven know how to implement know how to stay committed know how to keep serving at my job this is what god's asking us to do and the days are coming i believe when queen sheba again is going to visit the church and 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 they're going to say how do we talk or take care of this crisis in our community in 10 years if we don't have a healing ministry we're in trouble based off of what health looks like i'm not trying to scare people but seriously if the church doesn't have a healing ministry we're in trouble because a lot of people might not get health care In 10 years, we need to be leading the way in adoption in our communities. We have a couple in our community right now that are working hard to adopt. We need to be leading the way. To demonstrate the Father's heart. We can't dance before the Father and then not demonstrate His heart for the orphan, the lonely. God wants to put innovative solutions on our church so when the Queen of Sheba comes, she's like, I didn't know half the stuff you were doing. And can I just say the size of a church is immaterial, but the authority of a church is inconceivable. Don't look at a small church and think small churches can't shape nations. There's nothing further from the truth. That has absolutely nothing to do with how many people attend in a gathering. The size of the church is immaterial. The authority she carries is inconceivable. You are the light of the world. The amount of attending doesn't affect what matters. what matters is the authority we carry. Parents, did you ever notice that that very small thing in your home, when it was born, it could make a lot of noise? It didn't matter how big it was, right? It made a lot of noise, and upon its noise, everybody in the house had to reorient around that noise. Every, every other child had to reorient around that. Small churches can change the culture. Small churches can change the culture. You don't believe that, do you? It's not the size of the church that changes the culture. It's whether or not she's going to let her light shine where God has called her. And I believe the the Father's call is to release everyone, every day, everywhere. It's my passion as a pastor to see ordinary people know their authority, understand their identity, understand what God's called them to be, and have clarity about their assignment. And, and, And my heart as a pastor is to say, you know what? Not just, hey, what are we doing here at the church? But it's saying God is moving through you. God is moving through you, so help me understand what he's doing through you and how do we come alongside it and add passion and structure to it? How do we as a church empower you to do what God's called you to do? We need artists. Can I just take back offense real quick if I've offended any? If I can do this, I don't think I'm qualified to do it, but on behalf of the global church, I would just say to all the artists in the room, we apologize because what we have done for so many years in the church is we've tried to get you to fit into our structures And instead of us empowering you to shape and release destiny and culture in the city you live in. And we just did it because we didn't have wisdom from God. We just didn't have wisdom. So we tried to make you fit the church structure rather than empowering you to release life as an artist. Can I say that I believe in the future of our church. That one of the ways we can rewrite the story of our city is through artists. Yes, God. Yes, Lord, do it. Through artists. Through arts. Through arts. Look, we got got like four people in our community right now that work at Pest Band. Okay, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that God wants to try to bring change about in Pest Band through our church. Wake up and tell the Folgers. Okay? Four, Four people, many of which are leadership. You look in what Ashley's doing with Recreate. Already a perfect picture of innovation. You look at what God wants to do in taking pictures. And and Ashley had a big, great uh, sale this last weekend where she had this uh, downtown Woodstock market. And she has a a market that's set up every day and making incredible things. Half my house is filled with pallets. Three-quarters of our church is involved in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You think I'm joking? You want to bring change? Change. Brazilians, why is everybody at Gracie Baja? At Gracie Baja, because God has called you to infiltrate culture, bring about change. Why is half of Ed Boyle's technicians in the garage come to church a Dwelling Place? Folks, I want you to see with eyes. You, we have a hard time seeing sometimes when we're subjective. God is bringing about change in our city. He's calling us to be the light of the world, to bring about change. You can look all around. Zoomies, both assistant manager and manager are part of our church, Zoomies. I just began to start thinking this week. What about the teachers? What about Renee at a class? What about Laura Klink who needs the encouragement to continue on to serve those precious kindergartners? What about Aaron who has influence over an entire group, a community of people at Sprayberry High School? Man, I could keep going on and on And on. I want to say to the educators and teachers, listen to me. God has put something incredible in your life. He has literally put the destiny of a whole community in your hands on a daily basis. And your job is exactly the same as the church's job. It's to supply the destiny of a community. It's why I like teaching. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably be a teacher because it's so much like pastoring. You're supplying the destiny of an entire community every day for almost nine months out of the year. As an educator. And God, as an educator, has put something amazing on you, and the Father wants to release you right where you are. Spirit breakout, Rachel just sang? Spirit breakout. Well, listen, spirit breakout happens as the church moves out, as we engage. You are anointed in every sphere, but you're not anointed for every sphere. Can I say it again? You're anointed in every sphere, but you're not anointed for every spirit. So you need to have clarity on what rests on you and where it is to be released and where God's called you. That's why Albert Einstein, he said, everybody's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it's stupid. So you take a fish out of the water and you throw it on the ground and it looks stupid. <clears throat> Those aren't brilliant creatures. But you take that fish and put it in the water and you're like, "Whoa." And the same is true for Christians. They're out of their element. They don't know where they're at, and they look stupid. If you judge a fish by climbing a tree, it'll always believe it's stupid. And so many Christians never get into their flow. They never get into their place. They never get into the area that God's called them. And when you do, you look like a genius because God has gifted you. He's put his spirit on you. And as we move into our workplaces... We begin to think with the Holy Spirit's perspective, we need to enter our workplaces tomorrow morning with the same expectation we brought through those doors this morning. I would love that. We're we're in for the most incredible encounter of our life. I want to end with this final text. I'm going to text my wife real quick. I'm just kidding. Seriously, a final text. Acts chapter 18. You ready? Verse 5, Acts chapter 18, look what the scripture says. And if you guys can come, you can come, (laughs) if you're possible to come. Acts chapter 18, verse 5 through 8. This is what I believe God is speaking to us. You ready? Verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, to testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I'm innocent. From now, I will go on to the Gentiles. Look at the next verse. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door. Everybody say next door. I want to pause right there a second. Where he is before, he's getting opposition He's getting persecution. Nothing's breaking loose. There's no revival. And listen to me, it's impossible to be the Apostle Paul and not carry revival. If you're going to be Apostle Paul, you've got to carry revival. And where he's at, there's nothing breaking forth. So he just keeps reaching because he knows the Father has more for him in the wardrobe. So nothing's happening there. And he goes where? Next door. No revival happening here, so he goes next door to the house of Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. Look what the Bible says, verse eight. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and we're baptized. What happened? He just moved next door. And it wasn't a very far place to move, folks. It wasn't a very far place to go, but that place was the place where revival was happening. And we have been praying for so long in the church for God and a move of God in the church that I think we've been mo- missing the move of God in the world. We've been missing the move of God next door. Yet we're here praying and nothing's happening. Yet we're here praying and nothing seems to be breaking loose. Listen to me, the move you've been waiting for is next door where is next door it's in your job that's where the move of God is it's in your job it's in the place you serve that's where God wants to move that's where the spirit of God wants to break out and isn't it so kind of the father that he sets you where you get paid for bringing revival like how how much wisdom does God have he paid you to bring the light of the world how kind of him genius of the father that he put you in a place and put the revival in the place where you spend your most time you don't spend your most time at church you spend your most time at work and that's where the revival is next door walking next door God wants to break out isn't that so wise the Holy Spirit is moving next door all over our city but we gotta go And when we go, it all changes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.